So you don't have to show me your hands, but have you ever gotten a speeding ticket? And especially if you got one on the way to church, please don't tell us about it. It's all right. Now, have you ever gotten a speeding ticket in a boat? <laughs> it's a little different, right? There's been a ton of rain around the Twin City areas of St. Paul and Minneapolis up in Minnesota. In fact, there's been so much rain that the St. Croix River that sits on kind of the outer eastern edge of the Twin Cities is really, really high. It's so high that this weekend they have issued a no-wake zone for about 50 miles of the river. Now, if you're not a boater, uh, a no-wake zone means that when you go through this section, you need to go super slow instead of super fast. Why? Well, if you go super fast, then the movement of your boat is going to create some waves. And those waves are going to create more waves. And eventually those waves, because the river's so high, are going to spill over and cause problems on shore. So how fast are they allowed to go? Well, according to a statement from the Washington County Sheriff's Office, it reads like this, The slowest possible speed necessary to maintain steerage, and in no case greater than five miles per hour. Now, for you boaters, this is kind of a normal speed when it comes to a no-wake zone. But, I mean, five miles an hour for us non-boaters, man, that, that sounds really slow. I mean, I'm pretty sure I eat a hot donut at least at eight miles an hour. So, I mean, five miles an hour is just a, just a whole other thing here. But that speed, according to the authorities, is something that's going to, to help the people on the river. It's going to make sure that, that damage doesn't come to the shores along that 50-mile stretch. And it also is going to make sure that other boaters aren't going to have waves, you know, throwing a bunch of debris and, and trash into their boats while they're out on the river as well. There's some other advantages, too. Uh, not only will those folks not have, you know, trash that washes up in their boats, not only will uh, the shores not be damaged, but if you slow down to that speed on the St. Croix River this week, you'll also get to enjoy some beauty. You'll get to enjoy the majestic bluffs at the Interstate State Park along the river. You'll get to enjoy the, the beautiful delta that's at Kinnikinnick, I think I said that right, State Park along the way. Also, if you slow down to that speed on the river, you'll be able to enjoy the scenery of some fantastic little towns, little river towns like Taylor Falls and, and Stillwater and Bayport. In other words, slowing down on the St. Croix River today might not be as bad as some of those boaters may think. They might actually enjoy the demand to slow down. So... When you think about your world right now, are there some things that you wish would slow down to about five miles an hour? <laughs> Maybe even a little slower? Are there some things in your life that you would love to all of a sudden find a, a no-wake zone? Well, there is a way for you to have no-wake zones in a lot of different areas of your life. Really, if we were to stretch it out, there's a way for you to have a no-wake zone in every area of your life. And how is that possible? Well, let's find out. Psalm 23, we're going to be looking at the last part of verse 2. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. Sheep can be ignorantly impatient. One shepherd notes that if, if sheep get thirsty, they don't want to wait for wherever the shepherd is taking them to get water. So they'll find themselves on the trail, they get impatient, and they're thirsty, and so they just drink from some of the potholes in the ground along the trail. 
potholes that were sitting there the day before when another flock of sheep came through there or some other kind of animals, and they left some stuff in those potholes. So it's contaminated water. It's polluted water. But the sheep are thirsty, and they don't want to wait. So they go ahead and take a big gulp from the pothole, a quick fix to their thirst, and then a long sickness from that quick fix. It's a good thing we're not like sheep, right? I mean... None of us have ever grabbed the milk carton out of the fridge and taken a swig without looking at the date first, right? No, we, we never do that. I would imagine that we, we never have some drama queen or some drama king for our parents when, when on a Friday afternoon they ask us to do some, some simple household chore, right? We, we never do that. I'm sure that, that none of us ever tap our feet in the kitchen waiting for our spouse to arrive for dinner or, or tap our fingers on the steering wheel waiting for our spouse to get to the car so we can go to the restaurant. None of us ever do things like that, right? We never huff and puff when the sales lady at the department store tells us, hey, we don't accept checks anymore. We never get impatient with that, right? We, we never get uh, a huffing and puffing attitude with the, the, the cashier at the diner. When she says, sorry, we don't accept cards here. No, we, we don't ever do things like that, right? Isn't it good that we are not like sheep? <laughs> Hopefully you hear my sarcasm. See, the reality is, is, is all of us find ourselves in moments where we do things just like that. Remember, we're a culture that has double drive through lanes at fast food restaurants now. We have self-checkout lines everywhere. We have next day shipping. We, we live stream stock quotes. I even heard somebody the other day saying that 140 characters to text on Twitter is way too long. It needs to be shorter. You know, we, we are an impatient crowd. Christine Egan, the author, says this, I've had it with impatient people. I've run out of patience with them. <laughs> Journalist Linton Weeks similarly says this, We have become impatient with impatience. It's true. Weeks goes on to say this, we want quick answers to complex problems, the economy, diseases, personal relations. If you watch Fox News, if you listen to NPR, if you listen to talk radio, that is a very true statement. We are a country demanding quick answers to complex problems. And what happens if we don't get our quick answers? You know what we do? We start drinking out of potholes. That's what we do. We will, we will take any advice from anyone as long as it feels like what we want to hear when we want to hear it. Or we'll accept a substitute that we know is probably not a good idea. Or we'll just throw a temper tantrum. <laughs> we'll do it right there in the middle of the store, in the middle of the kitchen, middle of the classroom or the boardroom. We'll do it right in the middle of the car or the bank or the pharmacy or the doctor's office. We'll do it at the town council meeting or we'll do it at the committee meeting at church. See, we're, we're not like sheep, right? We, we never do any of these things. The reality is we are just like the same sheep that David is writing of even here in his song. Listen again to what he says. He leads me beside quiet waters. See, sheep need to be led. Every day, all day, they need to be led. Why? Well, we've already seen they're ignorantly impatient. They, they need to be led because they'll, they'll do the wrong thing if left to themselves. But that's not the only reason. The other reason that a shepherd needs to lead the sheep is because they are deeply dependent. Now, we live in a culture, generally speaking, where we pride our independence as, as individuals. You know, we, we pride the fact that, that we grow up and we move out of the house and we go make it on our own. 
You know, we say, man, I don't have anything that I have not earned by the sweat of my own brow. The only problem with that is you don't have a brow and you don't have any sweat without God. See, God created us, and, and God's the one who is giving us the breath that we're breathing right now. So technically speaking, there is not a single one of us who has ever been independent for a millisecond of our lives. We are always dependent on someone to give us food and shelter and clothing and money. And that someone is the one true creator God. We are a dependent people. We are deeply dependent. And because we're dependent, we need to be led beside quiet waters. Why? Last week we noted four reasons why sheep would not lie down in a green pasture. A true shepherd said, well, they won't lie down for these reasons. Fear, conflict, aggravation, or anxiety. Fear, conflict, aggravation, or anxiety. Now, those things are not just for green pastures. They're also for quiet waters. You see, a waterfall would be a terrible place for a sheep to go get a drink. There's just way too much noise. There's way too much spray. They, they would be so anxious and so afraid. They would not be able to drink from the water. Even a, a fast-moving stream or, or a river that's trickling a little too much, these, these would be something that might spook a sheep. And what would happen if the sheep get spooked? Well, they'd fall in. Now, why is that a problem? Well, sheep have these phenomenal heavy coats and these itty-bitty legs. And so you have them kind of top-heavy, and they, you know, they'll topple over pretty easy. Have you ever had one of your friends push you into a pool or lake, you know, when you had all your clothes on? Okay, me and Harold, okay. Um, what, what happens is when you get in the water, you know, your, your clothes, they just they soak up, and they make, it makes it very hard to move. So imagine a sheep getting over next to some water, getting spooked, losing its balance, toppling over into the water. All that water would, would soak in to that wool, and, and they would sink fast because they can't swim. It would be all sheep wrote. I had to do it. It was just there. I had to do it. It would be dangerous for a sheep to be near water that would cause them to be afraid or anxious. Here's the thing. The shepherd knows that. And so the shepherd is going to lead them to a safe place. He's going to lead them to a place where they can have their thirst satisfied and they can have their thirst satisfied with water that's not polluted or contaminated. So why would the shepherd do that? Well, the shepherd does that. He leads them to quiet waters. He leads them to places where the water is good because his sheep are valuable to him. See, the, the Lord leads us. He's our shepherd because he loves us. The Lord leads us because he is the owner of the universe. Therefore, he knows what is best for us. And the Lord leads us because we are valuable to him. How valuable are we to God? Well, so valuable that he gave his son for us. This is what Paul told the Galatians, Galatians 2.20. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What does it mean to live your life by faith? 
Well, some people live their life by faith in their horoscopes. You know, they get up and read it and figure out what to do with their life that day. Some people live their life by faith in their skills or their talents or their abilities. Some people live a life of faith by their family or their friends, by their their money or their property, by their education or their career. Some people live by faith in in the government or they live by faith in in science or they live by faith in, in, in karma or nirvana. They live by faith in lots of different things. Some people live by faith in their own obedience to religious rules. Their faith is in their obedience only. They're they're just good rule keepers. Some people live by faith in themselves with the adage of, to thine own self be true. Here's the thing, though. To live by faith in the Son of God is completely different from all of those faiths. See, all of those faiths, we might be able to say, are kind of like surviving faiths. Surviving faiths. They, They are able to help you survive, generally speaking, in life. They're able to help you survive some of the good days and some of the bad days. They're able to help you survive through things that you face at school and at work and at home and and on the weekend. They're surviving faiths. The faith of Jesus and faith in Jesus is not a surviving faith. It is a saving faith. So what does that mean? Look again. Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Saving faith is embracing that Jesus loved you and he gave himself up for you to rescue you from the eternal penalty of your sin, to rescue you away from the rebellion that's in your heart that says, I'm going to fight to get my way more than I'm going to honor God and his way. Saving faith is embracing that without Christ you understand that you lose out on all of the unique grace and power that God has for you today, but you also understand that without Christ when you die, there is no reason to think you will be near to God. See, saving faith moves us. It it changes us, not just in our head. Saving faith is is not just a, a lucky charm for a bad day. Saving faith is defining your life and and ordering your life and living your life and surrendering your life underneath this unbelievable umbrella that's constantly over your heart reminding you that the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, He gave Himself up for you. For you. Listen, Jesus did not give Himself up just to help you through today. It's not. Jesus gave himself up to save and rescue you. You may say, I I don't think I really need rescue, and I I think I'm okay. Just after midnight on July 30th, 1945, the USS Indianapolis was sunk by torpedoes from a Japanese submarine. It's been noted as the worst U.S. naval disaster at sea. There were 1,196 on board. 300 of them approximately went down with the ship when it sank. 900 were able to get away from the ship, and and they were left stranded in the water over the course of four days. No notice was given that, that the ship did not arrive where she was supposed to arrive, so there was no one out looking for them. A plane on a completely different mission happened to see them. 
And by the time they were rescued of the 900 that initially survived, only 317 were still living. One of those survivors was Marine Corporal Edgar Harrell. In an interview with Colin Hansen, the former Marine, he said this, I don't care who you are, there will come a time when you are going to pray. You may not know to whom you are praying, but believe me, you will pray. In other words, what he's saying is you will know you need to be rescued. If you think you don't need to be rescued, let me just encourage you, you were created with an understanding that you need to be rescued. So if you think you don't, you are fighting truth. Not just general truth, but the truth that has set up its tent in your heart. We need to be rescued. He goes on to, to share in the interview that, that he was at church after he became a Marine. And he was sitting there one Sunday and, and he heard the gospel and he realized that something needed to change. You see, in that interview, he was asked, they said, well, was there any way you could have prepared yourself for what you experienced? And he said, the only way you can prepare yourself for anything in life is to be prepared to die. So he says, when I sat in church that day and I heard the gospel, I had already become a Marine and I realized I was not prepared to die. And he repented and God saved him. Two years later, he finds himself out in the Philippine Sea, drifting desperately, watching his shipmates either slowly drown or, or be attacked by sharks. And he said that it was his faith in the Son of God that held him together. In the middle of, of a turbulent ocean, God actually was helping him have quiet waters. In the middle of dangerous waves, God was actually creating a no-wake zone in his heart and his mind because his confidence was in the Lord. I want you to hear this from, from his own words. Believe me, I, I can see, I can experience, and I just think right now, I can just look up and see that Ventura, that D-25 as I call it, that twin engine bomber plane with wheels on it, when he was coming in uh, and looking for submarines, and uh, I think he sees us, look, he sees us, he's coming in, and he was coming in. He had not seen us. He could not see us. Impossible for him to see us. And to think today that the impossible thing was made possible. Here, look, he sees us. He's coming in. He's coming in. Well, let me take you back up there. Here he's flying at, let's say, 4,000 feet. He's looking farther to him four miles. He's looking at his peripheral vision two and a half mile each side. He's looking at 20 square miles to see a man's head down there six by eight inches impossible but he saw the oil slick he's coming in on the bombing run and now as he gets down under that two thousand feet he sees uh, debris he sees sharks attacking boys he comes down and i can see him today as he circle mckissick and myself i can see his visage in that plane and i think of that today i just say thank you lord thank you for your providence in working all of these things for many of we survivors but for me in particular thank you lord so good did you hear his words 
It's impossible. It's impossible. I'm in the ocean where, where we are and, and, and our rescue. It's impossible. It's impossible. But God made the impossible possible. And I love how he, he sees. He sees. I can still see him now in that plane flying over us. He sees. What kind of faith is Edgar Harrell proclaiming? He's proclaiming the kind of faith that even if death had found him in that ocean during those four days, that death would have only been a sting for him because he was rescued long before he ever got on the ship. See, that's the faith that is saving faith. It's not surviving faith. It's saving Somebody might say, well, that's a powerful story from an honored veteran. But it, it's still just a, a catchy Bible verse. It, it's still just kind of a religious crutch. It's, it's still just something that, that somebody might use as kind of a, a lucky charm to, to get them through a, a hard time in life or a difficult day. No, because see, the gospel doesn't give out lucky charms. The gospel doesn't give out religious crutches. The gospel doesn't give out religious rules for salvation. The gospel doesn't give out you know, a, a lucky charm or a certificate or a medal for salvation. The gospel gives a Savior. A Savior who saves. J.I. Packer says this about saving faith. Faith is our act, but not our work. It is an instrument of reception without being a means of it. It is the work in us of the Holy Spirit who both evokes it and through it engrafts us into it. In other words, our salvation is the work of Jesus on the cross and we receive all of the benefits when we surrender to him. Packer goes on, we know at once the personal relationship of sinner to Savior and disciple to Master. And with the dynamic relationship of re resurrection life communicated through the Spirit's indwelling. And then he says this. So faith takes and rejoices and hopes and loves and triumphs. See, saving faith doesn't just survive. Saving faith triumphs. It receives all of the victory that comes from Jesus Christ. And so saving faith means this, that you are saved even if you don't survive the trial because you were rescued before the trial ever existed. Really, put that in your tank. Saving faith means that even if you don't survive the trial, you are saved and you will be saved because you were rescued before the trial ever began. That's why David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. Now I'm pretty sure that King David at least once probably literally went out and sat down by some quiet waters. Somebody laid down a, a royal blue blanket for him and he sat down and, and ate grapes and you know he was fine. But even if he didn't, he understood what it meant that in any given moment, he could be refreshed 
He could be renewed. He could have confidence because the Lord was his shepherd, and that was never going to change. Psalm 73, verse 28 says this, The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. So if I'm not in the green pasture, if I'm not by the quiet water, if I'm not out on the lake at Memorial Day, if if I'm not at the beach in the middle of the summer, if I'm in a situation where everything is really, really crummy, the Lord is my shepherd, I'm near to him, so I have everything that I need. Mike Minnick says this, The secret of serenity is not something or some circumstance. The secret of serenity is the shepherd himself. David found his serenity not in the things God gave him, but in the God who gave them to him. It was God himself who was his shepherd. It was God himself who was his green pasture. It was God himself who was his quiet waters. It was the biggest day of the feast. Huge feasts, lots of fun, huge crowds. Everybody was having a blast. All the crops had basically been stored, and, and it was just a time to, to gather up all their fruit and all their other crops and to, and to just have a celebration together. And the celebration was geared for worshiping God, for praising God. And they would praise God over the course of a whole week. They would praise Him for providing the crops for that year, the, the rain and, and all the good things that they needed. And they would pray that God would do it again for next year. And then they would long that God would one day satisfy their hearts in eternity in his kingdom. And every day of this week-long feast, this festival, one of the priests would take a golden pitcher and he would go down to the pool at Siloam and he would fill up that pitcher and then he would walk back to the altar and there was like a parade. People would gather along the streets of this route of the golden pitcher. And the priest would take the golden pitcher and he'd pour the water out on the main altar. And and that was a way of of them just saying, God has provided. God, will you provide? And Lord, would you help us to cross the Jordan? Would you help us to be with you forever? And so after watching that for a whole week, on the very last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and in a loud voice, he said this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. (laughs) This is crazy talk for this scene, okay? These people are worshiping God for how God's provided for them. These people are worshiping God, longing to one day be in his kingdom. In the middle of that scene, Jesus stands up and with a loud voice says, that golden pitcher is pointing to me. (laughs) you imagine the crowd? Who is this guy? Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I am the living water of God. I and only I can satisfy your greatest thirst. In other words, what Jesus did was he stood up in front of a huge crowd of people and he pretty boldly and clearly proclaimed that he was God the Son. See, a moment like that is not surviving faith. It's not horoscopes. It's not religious rules. It's not fancy televangelism. A moment like that is the Messiah standing up and proclaiming himself as the king of love and the king of salvation. It's the Messiah standing up and saying that he was and he is and he will always be the only thing that will satisfy the thirst of your soul. 
But there's a catch. You see it right there in the first part. You have to be thirsty. You have to be thirsty. Pastor John Piper's dad was a faithful evangelist for about 40 years. One day his dad told him this. He told me one time that the hardest work is not getting men saved, but getting them lost. To put it another way, the hardest thing is not to satisfy their thirst, but to make them feel thirsty for God. All men thirst, but not all thirst for God. Where's your thirst today? Are you thirsty for God? If you are, then every promise from eternity past to this moment, and especially through God's word, promises you that the good shepherd will satisfy your thirst if you are thirsty for him. But what if you're not? What if you're not thirsty for God? Then the gospel would tell you this. You can search the whole world over. You can go in every corner of South Carolina, every corner of the United States. You can go to the far corners of the world. Go to some great historical site that claims to be the fountain of youth. And boy, you take a big swig and you will still be thirsty. Because your soul will never be satisfied until it finds the living water of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this. Thirst is an insatiable longing. There is no reasoning with thirst, no forgetting it, no despising it, no overcoming it by stoical indifference. In other words, I'm not thirsty, I'm okay. No, you can't do that with thirst. Thirst will be heard. The whole man must yield to its power. Thirst will not let go. And then he says this, even thus, It is with that divine desire which the grace of God creates in regenerate men. Only Jesus himself can satisfy the craving of a soul. If you get nothing else from today, get that sentence. Only Jesus, only the good shepherd. Teenager, college student, senior adult husband or wife who's frustrated in marriage, worker who's about to pull your hair out at work, whatever it is that you want to be different or change, whatever it is that you wish were not the way it were, at the end of the day, the only thing that will ever satisfy you in any of those moments will be Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus will satisfy the craving of your soul. Only Jesus. Only Jesus.